Welcome to the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast, part of the Thrive Podcast family. This is a place to focus on helping pastors and leaders discover or rediscover their purpose, passion, and vision. Ray Johnston is the founding pastor of the Bayside Family of Churches. He's the architect of all the Global Thrive Conferences. He is also an award-winning author and a widely sought-after speaker, mentor, and leadership authority. Each episode of the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast is a conversation between Ray and his hand-picked, world-renowned guests as they share timeless principles, timely insight, and new ideas on how to grow as a leader wherever you're planning. Today with Ray, author, former NFL player, and pastor of San Diego's Rock Church, Miles McPherson. So let's get right into this episode of the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast. Hey, Five, it's Ray Johnston, and I'm here with Ephraim Smith. And you know what? We are about to interview, have a conversation with one of my favorite pastors in America. When I planted a multi-ethnic urban church in Minneapolis, this was the guy, this was the church that I went to visit to pattern everything we ended up doing after. Pastor Miles McPherson, former NFL football player. He's an author. He is the lead pastor of one of the most dynamic, multi-ethnic metropolitan churches in the nation. He took the same intensity and swag from the football field and has brought it into the pulpit in the sanctuary. He's not even paying me for this introduction. This is his <laughs> totally free introduction and he's never been introduced like this in his life. Sisters and brothers, ladies and gentlemen, Miles McPherson. I feel like I should applaud or something. Okay. Yeah. Next time I speak, I want you to introduce me. The, uh, he's also authored an incredible book that we actually think everybody should read. We'll get back to that in a couple minutes. Hey, first of all, Miles, welcome to Thrive, man. We're glad you're here. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Ray. Ephraim, I need to bring you on the road, brother. That was great. No kidding. The, uh, uh, hey, first of all, Miles. Pastor in a church, speaking all over the place. Last time we talked, you had to leave the conversation to go on Anderson Cooper. Um, I left the conversation to have lunch with my daughter. The, um, so you're everywhere. Um, you're authoring a book on reconciliation, things like that. Um, however, most people would say this. You growing up weren't likely to be, you weren't basically going to be voted most likely to be a pastor. No. So can you tell everybody, just give, let your background roll, man. Yeah, I grew up in New York, um, had a dream to play football. So in 1982, I was drafted to the Los Angeles Rams after going to a Division three school. And my first two years of a four-year career, I was doing cocaine, smoking weed, chasing women, running, just living wild right here in San Diego. And one night, one morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, after using cocaine all night, I committed my life to Christ, stopped doing cocaine that day, stopped smoking weed that day, got back with my girlfriend. We've been married 36 years. Uh, and that day we got back together. So God radically changed my life. I was the last guy to be to be thinking about being a pastor. So so real quick, before we dive into some other stuff, because Ephraim's got the next question. Um, people listening to you right now, there's a lot of folks that, that are listening to this thing. What would you say to somebody where they're going, I'm thinking about diving in, but my wife, my life's been going the wrong direction. I feel like I need a U-turn. What would you tell them to do? Well, I would tell you that... Um, do all the sinning you can, get as high as much as you can, run the streets as much as you can, and take notes and realize that you will only get death. You need to go to Jesus when you realize that the devil has lied to you and that he has overplayed his hand in your life to beat you down. 
But if you're just going to kind of go back and forth, just go for it, run yourself into the ground, and, and may be convinced, 100% convinced, I'm not doing that anymore. Because if you go back and forth, back and forth, you'll live your whole life like that. You need to be 100% committed in or out. That's what I would tell you. But then when you figure you're going to be uh, committed to Jesus Christ, jump in with both feet and it will be the best ride you ever had in your life. I stopped doing cocaine in one day, stopped smoking weed in one day. That same day, my girlfriend and I got back together. We've been married for 36 years, and that's the proof of the pudding. I was blind, now I see. That's the best evidence I can give you. But I was going hard with partying and hanging out, and I, and I came to the decision, that's not going to work. Boy, that is good. Probably yeah, not we, the advice you thought you were going to get. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we got a phrase we use around here. Sin fascinates, then assassinates. It is a bad right. road That's to right. be on, man. So well done. Ephraim's got a question. Yeah, you know, uh, well, we got to make a, a, a kind of a rough term from your documentary on lukewarm losers. And now we got to talk about... Uh, just what is going on in our nation right now? Uh, I mean, it's it's no breaking news that once again uh, we're in the depths of of just a breakdown in how the African American community, in many cases, and law enforcement, in some cases, really can move forward in, in a way uh, that that just shows not only reconciliation but the way that our nation could flourish together. Uh, and and so. You are in a unique position here because your dad was a police officer and your son is a police officer. And as best I can tell, our complexion is pretty close, me and you. So this has got to hit deep and personal for you. So how are you unpacking where we are right now as a nation in light of that? Yeah, first, let me tell you something. The, the, all police, you cannot categorize all police as bad or good. You can't categorize all white people as bad or good. All black people as bad as good. There are bad apples in all kinds of groups of people. Um, there are bad cops, as we've seen, and there are good cops. And most of them, I would say most of them are good cops. And so we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. My dad was a police, a police a patrolman. He was a detective. But then my dad became a detective where he was arresting cops. So you can't say he was a bad cop because he was arresting bad cops. Matter of fact, one day my dad and I got profiled by cops. We came out of a rental car place and he, because he was a detective, he noticed that we were being followed by detectives. And before they could stop us, he stopped them, jumped out the car and he was mad because we got profiled and he was a cop. And so, you know, how I process it, I would take every person as an individual. When I call 911, I want a cop to come to my house and save me, pray, pray they're going to be a great cop. And that's my, 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 my experience. My son's a cop, and, and uh, I, I consider him a good cop. And we need those. We just got to get rid of the bad ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, and we're still in this question, so I didn't turn it into an A and B question. Uh, so, uh, how did you process with your son when he knew being being a cop was was what he was called to be, what he yeah. was led to? Was was did you have kind of like, hey, this is how I'm going to speak into your life so that you can be uh, a, a cop for Christ, that you can represent the kingdom of God in that call? You know, what, my son, I'm loud. I talk a lot. My wife's the opposite. She's very quiet. You know, she's very private. And, and he's like her. So I was like, how are you going to be a cop? You're so quiet. But actually, it ended up being to his benefit because he's really calm when he's out there. And so we just pray for him, encourage him. We want him to pursue 
uh, his dream and be like his grandpa. My, his grandpa was alive at the time. And so they had a lot of bonding through when my son was going through the academy. And when my dad passed, he put his badge in his coffin. They were really close. And so it was part of our family. My great, great, great granddad was a cop. And so it kind of runs in our family. And so we just support him and always been there for him. I've been on ride-alongs with him. So we just, we're behind him 100%. And we wanted to be a good cop, which he is. That's awesome. Um, this has been blowing up all around America, and I'm glad it's a good thing. Um, it's called The Third Option. What drove you to write it and just unpack some of the stuff in for people? Because it's a whole when third I was, way of doing life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I was born in 1960, so I remember Martin Luther King. He was, he was, he was killed when I was eight. And I grew up in, where, in a black neighborhood and went to school in a white neighborhood, so our world was segregated. And when Martin Luther King was killed, I remember feeling how unfair it was. And I remember thinking, what do we do? And having dealt with racism all my life, I've always think, man, I want to do something. I want to do something. And five years ago or so, I can't remember, we started writing this book. Um, and I never realized this, we would get to this point. But what I wanted to do was to give people tools. And here's why. We live in an us versus them culture. And whether it's black against white or, or for or against the police or Republican or Democrat or American against immigrants, whatever you, whatever your us versus them is, rich versus poor. And because we live in an us versus them culture, everyone feels pulled to choose one of these two options. And if you're on one side, you can never agree with the other side. And so the book is called The Third Option because if you, if you want to abandon being an us versus them culture and choose the third option, which is to honor what we have in common. We have more similarities than differences. We all like our sleep. We all like our food. We all like our family. We all want purpose in our life. We're all on a journey. We all bleed red. And more importantly, we are all made in the image of God. And so if we focus on the things that we have in common, we can have more uh, peace and unity. Um, I remember I was in a prison once talking and this white supremacist was walking around this track around the yard and God told me to go talk to him I called him over and he got right in my face like this. And I didn't realize at the time that he and I are 99.5% genetically identical. Huh. We have so many more similarities than differences. And the devil always wants us to get us to focus on one or two differences to cause division. And so I wrote this book to give people tools on how to build bridges based on the perceived differences that we have and all the things that the devil and culture tells us needs to divide us versus saying, here's how it can unite us. Yep. So you're a, you're a preacher. Unpack some of those tools. That one of those tools is to acknowledge that you and I have blind spots. A blind spot is something that you don't know you don't know. It's the difference <laughs> between your, the intent of something you do or say and the impact of something you do or say. For example, a lot of people will say um, they don't see color. And their intent is to build a bridge. Their intent is to, you know, say, I want to treat you the same. I'm not going to discriminate. But the impact of what they say may be different because I remember the first time someone told me they didn't see my color. And I thought they had an eye stigmatism. So I said, man, you don't see blue, red, red and green. They said, no, no, we see those colors. We just don't see your color. I was like, well, so, so if, I, if you see those colors, if you don't see my color, how do you know I have a color you shouldn't see if you can see the other colors? See, when you say you don't see someone's color, 
what you are saying, is, well, one of the things you're, what we hear is that you are ignoring all what this brings to the table, all the experience that comes with this color, the burden that comes with this color, the pain, the pain or pleasure that comes with this color. You're basically saying, I'm like you, I'm not like me. And so you're erasing everything I bring to the table, and that's an insult. Uh, there was a young, one young lady who had gotten a tan, and she was trying to get this guy to talk to her. And she was bragging about her tan that she got in Hawaii. It's ironic how when someone gets a tan in Hawaii, they celebrate. But when someone gets a tan in the womb, we invalidate. Why is that tan something you want to see and show off, but this tan something you want to say you don't see? And so even though people say they want to, they're building a bridge and they're trying to say, listen, I, I want to treat you the same. But what they're saying is that everything God made you on the outside, I'm going to ignore. The Bible says in Galatians chapter two, 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the love of Christ. How can you bear a burden that's related to this color if you say you don't see the color? Therefore, you ignore the burden. Therefore, you can't love me. And so, it, it, again, it's a blind spot that we have. And people and all of us have them. It's because we have a social narrative. A social narrative is a story that shapes how you see the world. When you were born, your parents, your family, your neighborhood, your school gave you all this information about the world, about people of different shades, of different nationalities, different accents. It, 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 it developed a prescription of how you view everything, how you interpret the news. And so when you see people, you are filtering everything through that social narrative. But that social narrative is just one of six billion social narratives, and it's very limited. So we have to realize that by definition, as a human, I am, I have blind spots. There's things I don't know about certain people. And, and we have to admit that. Another thing is to have race consultations, not race conversations. Every time you talk to any human, even yourself, you are having a race conversation. Because we do see color, by the way, your eyes, your brain processes like 100 million bits of information a second, some crazy number. 90% of that comes through your eyes. So you see shape, motion, texture, depth, and color. Even when you close your eyes, you see black. So you can't not see it. So when you talk to people, even yourself, you are having a race conversation. If I talk to myself, I'm talking to a tan brother with green eyes and no hair. I know what I'm talking to. So if two white people are talking, they know they're talking to white people. If two Filipinos are talking, they know they're talking to Filipinos. There's nothing wrong with that. You are just acknowledging what God made. The problem is when you see people, especially that you don't know, your brain, because of your social narrative, will start to calculate and make all these assumptions based on what you see. And those assumptions are based on information you got in the past. It could be something that happened to you last week or when you grew up. Your social narrative will, will create this race conversation in your head. He's Asian. He's white. He's black. He looks rich. He looks poor. Da, 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 da. And you have all these assumptions in your head. That's a race conversation. What you need to do is take all that information and set it aside and have a race consultation. What that means is that you are now going to allow that person to self-disclose to you who they are, what they know, what their experiences are, instead of you imposing on them your assumptions. There was an incident happened in the news a week or two ago where a lady was in Central Park walking her dog. And she, her dog was off the leash. 
African-American man says, can you put the dog on the leash? Is the bird watching part of the Central Park? And she didn't put the dog on the leash. So the video that he filmed, she's got her dog in her hand, the leash in this hand. The dog is, you know, going crazy. And she's yelling at him to turn the camera off, saying, I'm going to call the police. And he's saying, ma'am, can you put the dog on the leash? And she calls the police and says, there's an African-American man threatening my life. Can you, can you send the police? And the police came. She, and then he finally, she finally put the dog on the leash, which, which is what she was supposed to have done in the first place. Well, she had a, she had a race conversation in her head. So a black guy, she felt uncomfortable. He wasn't threatening her. She calls the police. The police come. Little did she know that guy, well, one, he was right. But he was also a Harvard grad. But she didn't see that. She didn't have a race conversa- consultation. She didn't give him a chance to, to uh, disclose to her who she is. We can't, we have to stop doing that and start listening to people, getting to know people, and hearing people's story. So Ephraim's got the next question, but I want to piggyback on what you just said. Um, In the church, (laughs) in your church, okay, in my church, I mean, this is what our staff looks like, okay? In the church, how do we facilitate that? Is anybody taking steps that gets us to what you're saying, which moves us a little closer to at least getting other people. Yeah, in the church, you have your church, like our church is Skittles. We have all kinds of nationalities. And people, some people have been here a long time. We get along. We do family. We pray together. We serve together. do the Bible together. We worship together. We walk the streets together. We're having a, a countywide prayer meeting uh, next Saturday, June 20th, where we're going to line the streets in seven areas of the county. We're going to pray together. And so when you do life with people, your social narrative gets adjusted and you start to understand, wait a minute, I, they got pain like me. They got great food like me. They got a great family like me. And you realize people are people and they're creative variations of, uh, uh, of God's creation made the image of God. One of the things I would encourage people to do is to rename those people. When people come to your church, there are some people who've been there, like our church, they've been there for years and they're used to being around diversity. And then the word gets out in the community. It's like, hey, you wanted diversity, go to that church. And they come in for the first time and they're like, whoa, there's, you know, there's a guy <laughs> who goes here. He's, you know, he, he's a white guy. He, he lives on that side of the town. And, and he's like, when I'm here, I'm sitting next to people that I would be nervous to be next to outside of the building. <laughs> so there's still people in process, right? That's cool. Just let's, let's, we're all in a journey together. But you need to rename people, rename those people. And what I mean by that is that if you call somebody a black this or white this or Mexican this or immigrant, you dehumanize them. If you remember the greatest commandment in the Bible, the number one thing we all need to do is love God with our heart, mind, and soul and love our neighbor as ourselves. I'm gonna ask you two guys to say out loud, neighbor. 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 So all the people watching, God has commanded you to love him more than anything you do. Don't wanna hear about how much Bible you know. Love God. And then right next to it is love your neighbor as yourself. So why can't we do that? How do we get out of that loophole and still be praising God yet we don't like that person? Is because what we do is we take the word neighbor and we re- replace it with something that's not neighbor. We dehumanize people. We call them a black this, a white this, a thug, you know, a a looter, or whatever you want to call them. And once they're not a neighbor, I don't need to love them. Because the Bible says, like, I love a neighbor. So once I dehumanize them and make that person not my neighbor, 
I don't need to love him. So I can still come to church and say I love Jesus, even though I don't love God. I can, I can say I love a God that I can't see, but hate my non-neighbor who I can see. That's, that's the loophole. So you have to then say, okay, that guy who I may be scared of, or that girl that I, that I may be scared of, whatever it is, or I may despise because I think that there's privilege or whatever it is, or that cop, I need to put neighbor. That's my neighbor. Jesus, they asked Jesus in Good Samaritan, who's my neighbor? He said, everybody. So once I say everybody's my neighbor, now God says, I gotta love that person no matter what I like about him. You can see behind me all these pictures. I did a sermon where I had people imagine a person they can't stand, whether it be a black person, white person, you know, uh, immigrant or whatever. Who is the per person that you just can't stand or the, you love the least? And think the most vile thing that's in your own heart about them. Just be real with yourself. Don't, don't be fake. Just say, yeah, I got a problem with these people. I got a problem with these people. And then I said, I'm going to talk today about how you need to love that person because that person is your neighbor. That's where your Christianity is really going to be tested is how you treat people that are far from you. So if you just take every person in your, your life, people, anybody you see on the street, at the mall, wherever, and say, that's my neighbor. People doing stuff that gets under your skin, that's my neighbor. And treat them through that lens. Remember, your social narrative says they're a thug or, or they're privileged or whatever. Forget that. That's the world. What does the Bible say? That's your neighbor. And if we, if we start there, so when you ask me about the church, when you come in here, listen, I talk about black, white, Hispanic, and Asian. Why? Because it's, it's the beauty of God, the diversity of God. Don't trip on it. It's just a fact. And, and if we can just accept us as who God made us and get to know each other and get to know how to carry each other's burdens and realize we're all dealing with the same stuff that just looks a little different, then we can all get along better. Instead of it being my way over your way. It's really God's way. Justice is not a black thing. It's not a white thing. It's not a police thing. It's not even, it's not even a constitution of the United States thing. Justice is a God thing. When, 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 when Joshua was going into the promised land, he was confronted by the command of the Lord's army. And he says to the command of the Lord's army, are you for us or our adversary? Look what he said. If you ain't on my side, you're my enemy. Joshua chapter five, he said to the Lord, he didn't know it was the Lord. If you're not on my side, you're my enemy. In culture right now, either you're on this side or this side. Yeah. And if you're on this side and you say the wrong thing, you're a sellout. That's what we see when people get shamed, right? And so he said to the commander of the Lord's army, are you on my side or are you my enemy? And the commander of the Lord's army said, no. And Joshua's like, no, it's not a yes or no question. I mean, <laughs> you're, are you on my side? On that side, it's, it's either or. It's not a yes or no. He said, you, you only gave me two options. It's the third option. <laughs> it's my option, God's option. He says, you want to stand on holy ground. And what he was saying was, I'm not either, either one of you side. Check us out. God wasn't on the Jews' side. The Jews were supposed to be on his side. Hmm. He said, the promised land is my idea. It ain't yep. your idea. This whole Abraham thing, that's my idea. So I'm not here to defend you. You're here to do what I want you to do. And so as a church, we have to say, listen, this is not about my idea or your, your idea. Justice is about God's idea. And if we, if we work and walk faithfully to secure the justice of God, this thing is way better than we can ask or imagine. That's the third option.
Man. You, okay, I'm gonna take your advice because there was things I was thinking about Ray, but I'm moving away from that and he's my neighbor. So I'm just, I'm just saying, I love you, you're my neighbor. Finally. <laughs> so, hey, okay, this is great, Miles. I, I gotta put this before you because we must be missing something because I, I think you and I, in some way, we've been inspired in our callings by those that have come before us. I think of Raleigh Washington and John Perkins. I, I think uh, Tony Evans. There, there are those that have been around for you know 30 years ago, preaching racial reconciliation and the kingdom of God and unity. There must be something all these years later in this present moment that we're missing. So, so how do we move forward? What, what is it that we're not seeing in the nation right now that could, that could move us forward in a transformative way? I'll answer what I think you're asking. Um, when I saw George Floyd killed, something triggered in me that I had never thought my whole life, that I felt powerless. And when I saw him kneeling on his neck, it was a statement that black people are powerless to white people. I realized that that's what I had felt my whole life. I never thought, put those two things together. Mm. And therefore, and that same thing when, when Maude Arby was killed, those guys said, we can kill you in broad daylight and get away with it and film it. That's how, that's how powerful we are. And so when I saw him kill him with his hand in his pocket, like this is no big deal and nothing y'all can do about it. What happened, that hit a nerve in the country. And, and one of the things we all have in common is the image of God and the image of God was violated that day. The image of God and all these yes. people protested and said, nah, all right, that's wrong. Um, the reason I bring that up is you asked about what's different. What's different, and, I, and I've been saying this since th that happened, is that the white voice is pow more powerful than the black voice. And now that you have white people saying enough is enough, that's what's going to make a big difference. You, the, 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 the pioneers you just mentioned, they were just screaming in the wind and no one's listening, right? And, and, and when black people say, hey, what about this, what about this? If the powers that be don't listen, it doesn't move the needle. And, and ever since I was a little kid, all through my teen years, college years, 20s, 30s, 40s, arguing with people about racism, it's like, hey, whatever, it's no big deal. Now you have white culture saying, wait a minute. And so that's what is that that is one thing that is very, very different. You see now white quarterbacks speaking up, which never would happen. You know, when, years ago when, when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling, the court, white quarterbacks weren't saying anything because it was like, eh, now they're stepping up. A lot of things are going to move, and that's going to be a big difference. Because here's the thing. We can't do this by ourselves. Nobody can. We all have to work together. And in the past, it, it's been, for the most part, people of color do, trying to do it for the, for the most part. Now it's the, the, the vast majority of the population, which I believe is going to bring about big change. Boy, that is good. The... Let me ask you a question. As the church feels like it's been on the sidelines of this, one of the reasons we added this conversation, one of the reasons is just, I was on a conversation the other day and somebody just said, the church needs to speak up, the church needs to step up on this one. Um, and I want to ask a specific question because the minute you do that in a church with people filled that look like me, Okay, people are going, wait a second, this is being politicized. Democrats are trying to use this as a wedge. 
You go the other way and people are going, wait a second, this is politicized. Republicans are using this. And frankly, you know, you, you said earlier, hey, there are good cops, bad cops. You know, there are good people that are black, good people that are white. But, you know, that sort of thing. There are some really good politicians, but then there are some politicians that we elected them to fix things and they would rather fight than fix. OK, um, the talk about how parties are trying to politicize this, which creates a deeper divide. Have you thought about that at all? Uh, yes, I would say Republican, Democrat, us versus them. One of the ultimate yep. us versus them. Yes. That's why we, we, can't, we can't be there. We got to be the third option. And that's what Joshua was saying. Look, we got us and our adversaries and the, and the, and the, the commander of the Lord's army says, listen, I'm not coming down into your fight. This is something bigger than all of that. And so we have to do this because the Bible mandates us to love our neighbor as ourselves. One of the greatest demonstrations of the power of God is seeing people who don't look like each other love each other. Yeah. Or seeing people who are different yeah. or who are estranged be united. Reconciliation. That's the, you know, people walk in a room and go, now the football game, sporting, you see that. Uh, but for coming to church to see all these different kind of people, you know, Pastor, both of you pastors, how most churches are segregated, like 95% yep. are segregated. And shame on us that that's true because we're talking about loving everybody, but yet we can't even go to church with each, with, with each other, right? I'm glad it's not true of you, it's not true of us, but most churches are that way. I'm not saying if you have a church that's all anything, you're bad, but when people come in it, are, are those people, when they leave, do, can we worship together? And so for us to demonstrate that as, I would tell you this, some of the people who are saying that to you, that is an excuse to not get involved. They want their comfort, comfortable little bubble with our people. In my book, I talk about in-group, out-group, that everybody's in a group, and race or ethnicity is a group, passes our group. And a lot of people like to be in their group where everyone's like them, you're, that's your in-group. People not in that group or you're out. Yeah, that's exactly right. Not yep. like me. Yep. We like to be in our little bubble where it's comfortable and yep. we're familiar. We don't want to be uncomfortable. The gospel is about being uncomfortable, baby. It's about walking by faith. It's about God changing you and breaking you down and showing that you ain't all that, that he's all that and that you need him in your life. And so this is the ultimate uncomfortable for a lot of people, especially people who haven't been uh, uh, exposed to talking about race and having to deal with it. We got to deal with it every day. And so yep. now other people got to deal with it and it's uncomfortable. I get it. But God's going to get you through and he's going to purify people's hearts through it. Yeah, I'm going to put that swag in my preaching. I mean, you got to be uncomfortable, baby. It ain't about you, baby. <laughs> I, will, right. I will say your name. The first three times I preach like that, I'm going to say I learned that from Miles McPherson. <laughs> then it's the Holy Spirit from Smith. OK, so you still have great connection to the National Football League. You, you referred to this uh, a few minutes ago about players speaking out. Um, what, what's your take on what's happening uh, in the National Football League, players speaking out? I mean, I, I know of two places where um, reconciliation and unity can be driven. I, I think by mandate, it's the church. 
But I also know whether it's Jackie Robinson, whether it's Muhammad Ali, whether it's Arthur Ashe, there, there have been athletes who have used their platform. Um, because even before the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, I think integration into professional sports played a significant role in, in causing the kind of conversations we need to have about race. Uh, what, what's your take and, and how are you approaching your ability to influence and mentor pro athletes? Man, that's a half an hour right there. I'll, I'll just give you Go a couple for of things. The, the, the greatest sport on the planet is football. Yes, and, sir. <laughs> and of course, I'm biased, but here's why. The, the slogan for football, is, if you go to any locker room or talk to a football player, football is family. That's, that, that is a line, a, a real thing. And you got guys from all over the country, from all walks of life, mostly black and white for the most part. There's, there's a few non-black and white people for the most part. And when we strap it up, you got 53 guys that are like, let's go. And matter of fact, we go into training camp, there's 100 guys. If you don't, half of those guys are going to get cut. So every day we go to practice, it's like, it's do or die. Mm -hmm. There's no, you know, and so that mentality is with those guys. And every team has a chaplain. Every team has Bible study. Every team has Christian players. Every team has chapel the night before the game. Every team prays before the game. Every team has prayer to put the yard line after every game in the NFL. There's a lot of Christianity in, in, in the NFL. When it comes to race, historically, for the most part, only black players would say something. This is the first time now white players are saying something. And, and, and there's a lot of uh, influence and commitment to making things right. Um, if you notice on this book, Drew Brees wrote the forward. This was three years ago. And, you know, he's in the news now. Yep. And here's the thing about Drew. I've known Drew for 15, whatever he came to the charges, 15, 18 years ago, something like that. He's a stand-up guy. He has a blind spot. He said something that he shouldn't have said. Guess what? He's going to make it right. He's going to make it right. And some guys will be with him now. Some guys will take a while before they, before they forgive what he said. But he will make it right. And here's the thing. That, that culture is that you make things right or you go. You play good or you go. And so he's, he's the ultimate competitor. He's, he's a stand-up guy. He has a, like I said, he has a blind spot, but he's going to learn. He's going to make it right. He's going to be a leader. And that's the culture. And when he uh, apologized, I can't speak for all his teammates, but I know some of them who were blasting him one day. Next day, say, we're done. Forgive you. Let's move on. That's that culture. So there's some teams I'm talking to about doing book clubs and, and speaking to the whole team about the book. And that, those are in the works because they're having family meetings. And they got guys on the call, all 53 guys, actually 100-something guys because they got the staff and everything, crying, talking about, hey, I, got, I get pulled over regularly. I get, I get this. And yep. their players and coaches hearing this about their teammates, the stuff they never even knew. So, yeah, when I leave the locker room, I got to go out, and this is the experience I have. And then there's other players are going, we, we don't have that experience. And they're having a family meeting. All these teams are having family meetings. And they are – I was on a call with the whole San Diego State football team and went through, the, went through the highlight of the book. We had this kind of conversation, and guys just pouring their heart out about their experiences, their pain, their frustration – and other players hearing this stuff for the first time. Even some players saying, I never said this to anybody, but it's family. And so the NFL is going to be a force in bringing change in this country. You know, uh, speaking of sports, Ray Johnston 
played basketball, the second best sport. He was a point guard. I can't remember if you were more John Stockton, uh, was, Isaiah Thomas, you know, something like that. Uh, that, what he was, was, he, that was somewhere between old. a has-been and a never-was. The um, was that when you were eight years old? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, 30 years ago. I wish. The um, Miles, I have a couple serious questions. Um, the We have... Uh, eight churches. We have a lot of diversity. Okay, We have, I think, the most diverse senior pastoral staff of any church I'm aware of in the country. Okay, um, This is not easy, man. It is not easy. Okay? As a matter of fact, a, a, an African-American pastor in Southern California who pastors an almost all-white church called me the other day and he said, it would be so much easier to be in an all-black church. And I said to him, it would be so much easier to be in an all-white church. And we both agreed we were leaving our churches and going to go to a Korean Baptist church. Okay? And we just <laughs> went, hey, you're getting shot at by both sides. Everything you say is misunderstood. Everybody's on DEFCON you know, 15 in terms of amped up about this stuff. It is being politicized by both people. They hear it through a political lens, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it feels like we're having conversations. We're trying to get this right. What would you say to people that are going, oh, this is just too hard. I'm going to run back to my tribe. Well, I, I would say God has not called, God has not promised to make us happy and make life easy. Jesus died on the cross and they, they didn't just give him an injection. And he fell asleep. He didn't die in a coma. <laughs> he was beat, whipped, nailed. Preach. Um, and I, and I was, let me say this very respectfully to all those people. I get it. Yeah. Get over it. And the reason I say that is because there's been people who have been carrying that burden for their whole, my grandfather was 70, he was 81 when he died. And I led him to the Lord on his deathbed five days before he died. One of the last things he said to me when I brought up Jesus, he's, he's dying is a racist uh, uh, issue he had in a church he had in Jamaica with the Catholic priest. He carried that his whole life. Yeah. So why would they mean to my people? And this is hard. Yeah. Welcome to the club. And, and, yeah. and trust me, God is not gonna burden you with more than you can take, mm. but he has allowed us to be here in this time to carry this burden and purify your heart. God is gonna use this to make you holy. If you want to go back where it's easy and go back where you're in your bubble, go ahead. But you're not going to grow in your in your faith like you are now. And so if your goal is to be obedient and be like Jesus, stay in it, sit in it. And, and not only that, not only will you be more holy, more like Jesus, you're going to have the time of your life. You're going to meet some people that you wouldn't have met, personalities that you wouldn't have met. And so I would say stick it out. Uh, stop crying. It's going it, it, it's life. It's, it's life. And welcome to the club. But uh, God's not going to He counter the whole joy when you can't encounter various trials. This is a trial. Trust me. It's a trial. And it, and it is hard. Um, I, was, I was on a call with a friend today, and he says, at the end of every sentence, he says, you know what I mean? And I said, do you know that you say that every time? And he goes, I do? I said, like every sentence. So I said, every time you say that, I'm going to go ding. So we're talking. I'm going to ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and he was so frustrated. He didn't know what he was doing that. So he has to now change his whole mentality. But he says, I'm wanting, I said, do you want me to keep digging you? He said, yes, because I want to be better. Well, if you want to be better and be more like Jesus, let's go. 
That's go. good. That is good. Um, so we haven't talked about this. I'm going to give you a setup question because in my opinion, this should be read by everybody. And, and I have a deep, <laughs> good job. I have a deep conviction about this for, um, for two reasons. Number one is this. I've written books. You've written books. You've written books. Um, somebody asked me one time, why'd you write that? And I said, because every single human being needs to read it. Not so they've read it, so they'll live it. Okay? We're going to ask every single person, and there are about a quarter million of you watching this thing, get this, okay? You, we've got links to it. Uh, just go to our Thrive Resource on it. You can get a link right and grab it right away. Um, you, can get it, you can get it online. You can get a book form. Um, the, we want you to read it, pass it out, do small groups, use it, live it. Um, it's one of the few voices where I'm going, even the word social justice now feels like it's getting co-opted. And a friend of mine said, whoa, 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 no, that's a biblical issue there. It's biblical justice because the Bible isn't even one chapter old when it says all people were created in the image of God, which is center to this. Okay. So I'm going to ask everybody to read it. You wrote this what are two or three reasons every single person should read your book? Uh, one reason is you have a blind spot. There's things you don't know you don't know. And Good. this book is going to help you understand. I talk about uh, blind spots. I talk about renaming people, race conversations, holding people accountable in your family. You and I know the people we have in our family and our friends. We talk behind closed doors. Privilege. I talk about privilege and what that really is and how it impacts all of us. And so all these things... Uh, all the issues you face. And at the end of every chapter, there are three questions. So you can do a book club and go through it with your small group, your church, read a chapter, do uh, the three questions. There's a chapter in there where I have people uh, call walk in my shoes field trip where I ask, uh, and by the way, it's for, it's for all kinds of people. It's not just for white people, but this particular chapter where I challenge three people, white people to go to a place where they're the only white person to feel what it likes to, to see what it feels like to be a minority. And their testimonies are in this book about what they experienced, what they felt, what they thought, and what they learned hmm. that they didn't know. And, 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 and how their perception was actually wrong about where they were. And so this is gonna give people tools. This is not just gonna you know, slam you on the ground. It's not about that. It's about lifting you up and giving you tools on how to walk in unity with people, helping you know what to say. That's yep. what this book is for. And you get it wherever books are sold. If you if one outlet don't get it, go to another outlet. Go to MileyFierce.com. Search for the book. They keep running out of it places. So keep searching. Get audio, Kindle, all, all out there. When they're running out of book, that is a very good sign, my friend. Not just for you, but for this country. So last words. Man, I, I just want to say I, I'm grateful for what you're doing. Uh, we learn a lot from you. And uh, I, I pray uh, that uh, this book never stops penetrating every place, every crevice where we need unity, reconciliation and transformation. So uh, bless you, man. We, we, we love you. Love you too, man. Pastor Ray, I'm going to be developing a, um, what I'm calling similarity training based on our similarities for, the, for corporations, for churches, for law enforcement. Um, we, we already have it. We're going to digitize it so uh, we can tra train people in diversity, but we call it similarity training. So that's coming for corporations as well. You know what? Let me know because out of this conference, uh, we're launching a leadership podcast. We'll just do a whole one on that as soon as that's developed. So that's Great. fantastic.
Hey, the last thing I want to say is two things. Number one, get in shape, would you? He's looking good. I know, man. I've been eating, I've been eating a lot of ice cream. No, actually, I don't even eat ice cream anymore. But <laughs> after every meal, I eat chips because I have to crunch. I have this crunch thing. And my wife's like, what is your problem? I'm, like, I'm so glad I'm not getting fat. <laughs> if, I think potato chips make me get in shape. <laughs> if you can look like that eating ice cream, we're going for ice cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Done. <laughs> the, uh, hey, Miles, uh, would you pray us out of here and pray for our country? Lord, we, uh, we bow our knee before you. Uh, John 3.30, I must decrease and you must increase. I pray that our whole country would decrease themselves, humble mm -hmm. ourselves under the mighty hand of God that you may lift us up in due time because you care for us, you love us, you want better for us than we want for ourselves. You want justice more than we want justice and your form of justice is better than anything we can create. I pray for all of our hearts that we would seek you with all our might, all our soul, and that we would bow ourselves and humble ourselves and and just tell you we're sorry. Mm. We've taken this incredible image of God, this incredible planet that you gave us, and we have not been a good steward. So we are sorry. Mm. We pray you forgive us, that you restore us to a right relationship with yourself and with each other, and pray, I ask that you fill our heart with overwhelming agape love for everybody we see. No matter what our mind tells us, no matter what our in-group tells us, no matter what culture or the news tells us, I pray the spirit of God would lead us and empower us to love one another in Jesus' name, and we can live out the third option. Amen. 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 Miles, we came in this going, you know, we added this whole day basically because I feel like no political party is the hope of the world. Democrats aren't, Republicans aren't. They've been using this as a weapon on each other for years. The, uh, we believe this, Jesus Christ, the word of God is the hope of the world. And it gets laid out here better than I've ever seen. So thank you, my friend. Love you, appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. And for more about Ray Johnston or the Global Thrive Conferences, or if you have any questions or comments, go to thriveconference.org. And we'll see you next time for the Ray Johnston Leadership Podcast.